Hello, everyone. Welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Joe of Strange Sound. Glad to have you with me. Glad to be back. My goodness me, look at this. It's December 19th. Uh, when I'm recording this, not when you are hearing this, obviously. It takes me a few days to post these, but I am recording this on December 19th just to situate us in the time-space continuum. I am here in central New York, December 19th, 2020. That is where we are. Uh, glad to be with you. Um, again, these are these are difficult times. Um, we're heading into what's commonly known as the holiday season, the Christmas week for Christians and people who observe Christmas. Um, here comes Christmas. We're in, we're in the midst of Hanukkah as well, um, which is, you know, I mean, you know what time of year it is. It's that time of year, my friends. It's going to be a weird holiday season, as always, um, uh, as has always been. Uh, in 2020, pretty much every holiday this year has been weird, um, starting with Easter <laughs> and uh, going right in through the summer. Uh, you know, it's been a real crap fest and it's getting worse. Um, right now, we're hitting new records in COVID cases, um, in COVID deaths. There is the promise of two vaccines being distributed, and that's great. I'm glad to see that happening, even though the administration is being ham-fisted about it, as they usually are, having attacked the administrative state and having made that one of their priorities from the beginning. They're certainly um, realizing that goal. Um, and I don't know, optimistic predictions are that, you know, there's going to be something like 95% coverage um of vaccinations, assuming everyone wants to participate, um, 95% of the population could be vaccinated by the end of this coming year. That sounds like a long time to me. I don't know if I'm getting that right. I think Fauci said that um, the so-called herd immunity standard would be met um, if vaccinations reach the level that he believes they will reach at the end of 2021. That seems to me like a, a very long time. It seems to me like we could probably do better than that if we really put some heft behind this vaccination effort. My hope is that the incoming administration will do so. I don't honestly know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to be able to do. Part of what they're able to do will depend on what happens with these Georgia um, runoff races. Um, if you are in a position to do so, Please contribute to these races to make certain that the Democrats win. We know that that would have an impact, a positive impact. How positive, we don't know. The best we can hope for at this point is a 50-50 Senate. I'm personally of the opinion that the president should give some kind of cabinet position to um, Susan Collins and then have the Democratic— <laughs> I think there's a Democratic governor in Maine now, or at least an independent— have them appoint somebody who isn't a Republican <laughs> and then even up the odds a little bit and then maybe, I don't know, appoint Tom Tillis to something <laughs> and have the Democratic governor of North Carolina appoint a replacement. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a pretty good idea. I mean, if you're going to appoint a couple of Republicans, why don't you pick those two? 
why don't you pick Republicans that are uh, in the Senate, members of the Senate from states that have Democratic governors? Why don't you do that? I think that's a great idea. Give them, I don't know, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Trash Collection. I don't give a shit. Something. Just get them the fuck out of the Senate. At this point, I take it, you know. I'm still scratching my head over how we could not have knocked out Susan Collins. And when I say we, I mean the broader coalition that tends to vote Democratic, not the Democratic Party. I mean the broader coalition that tends to vote against Republicans. How it was that we could not knock out Susan Collins or Tom Tillis or Joni Ernst is beyond me. It's simply beyond me. But we didn't do it. And I was afraid of that coming into this election, but there we go. Let's realize. So our last chance is winning two runoff elections in Georgia, which is a which is a steep hill to climb for Democrats, generally speaking. But in this case, I think there's a real opportunity because there is a strong organizing activist coalition in the state of Georgia that's been working on this for years. And we've got a real shot here. We've got a shot to get these candidates over the finish line um, because people down in Georgia have done the hard work of organizing. Yes, they've lost races in the past. They've lost close races like um, like the gubernatorial race last time around. Stacey Abrams just barely lost and it was mostly due to um, voter suppression and, uh, you know, just denying people the ballot in various ways. They have all kinds of things that they try to do. Uh, and she just, she fell short. Um, but the process and the effort to get to the point where she almost won was building for the future. And she did so with a relatively progressive set of policies um, in the state of Georgia. Um, not your typical centrist campaign. Not your typical, you know, let's find a conservative Democrat to run in a southern state type of campaign. Was she as far left as I am to be satisfactory to me? Not particularly, but you know, want to know what? I, I believe in doing the best you can, given the electorate, given the level of organizing that's been done up to that point. You can't just pull progressive candidates or leftist candidates out of a hat. You have to prepare the ground for them. You have to do the hard work of organizing and educating and getting people on your side. You can't just run a progressive candidate and expect them to win. You need to build the infrastructure to make a win possible. This is the sort of thing that people like AOC are always arguing and that, you know, they get a lot of pushback from frankly, the dumb, dumb left um, that just considers electoral politics a big, fat waste of time or just, you know, want to rip progressives a new one uh, every time they suggest something practical to do to build institutional power for the left within electoral politics. Not that that's the only arena that you can fight in. Far from it. But it's an important one and when you cede it to the centrists and to the right right wing, you're going to get centrist and right wing policy. 
You're going to constantly be playing defense. You're never going to move forward. As long as we have an electoral republic in this country, as long as we have that, we're going to need to be a part of that conversation. We're going to need to be a part of that negotiation. That's it. And I know there are people on the left that prefer not to think about this. You know, they think that, you know, the revolution is right over the horizon. You're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. You need to work with the system we have. And you need to work around it. It's a strategy of both and. It's not a, it's not a strategy of either or. It's a strategy of both. You have to. You can't neglect electoral politics, even if it means supporting people that you don't necessarily agree with up and down the line, that are not progressive enough for your taste. This is not a reflection of your personal opinions. This is what's possible given the level of organizing that's been done on the ground in whatever whatever constituency those people are going to represent. That's the hard work of making change. It's part of it. That's the hard work on the electoral side. And it's related to the, the hard work on the non-electoral side, which is essentially building institutions of the left at the community level, wherever it is you live and work, right? It's building those institutions. It's building a, a co-op sector, you know, within your, your town, your city, your county. It's supporting progressive initiatives, It's fighting capitalist exploitation of workers, of renters, of people um, who are vulnerable. It's defending the rights of the people around you. It's defending immigrant rights and, and on and on. You know, people who are committed activists know this. People who spend, who spend most of their time, you know, on the ground fighting for people's rights Understand that it's not just a question of organizing alone or, you know, building institutions outside of electoral politics alone, but it's both. You need to do both. You can't neglect elections and you can't neglect the other work as well. I've talked about this before. I don't want to go on about it too, too long or too hard, but um, honestly, uh, we're going to have to see what. Um, the new administration is a willing to do and be able to do. I would like to see them have that 50, 50 Senate. And frankly, I really do think they should try to, (laughs) I really do think they should try to offer cabinet posts to these Republican senators in democratic run States. um, Just to see if you can't pick up a couple of seats as well. Cause I don't want them to have the excuse of, oh, well, it's Mitch McConnell. I can't do this. We can't do these things. It's Mitch McConnell is going to stop us. No, I don't want them to have that excuse. I want them to at least, at least have the ability to get a few things over the finish line. I saw Biden's announcement of his interior team, his uh, sort of environmental, you know, sort of land management team today. And, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by the Deb Holland appointment. Um, I, I think on a, on a very visceral level, it's just the notion of a, of a native American being appointed secretary of the interior 
is just, it's mind blowing to me. It's absolutely mind blowing to me. It's, it's, it just, there's something about that. And the fact that it's somebody like Deb Holland, you know, who's not just a, you know, a native American in name only. I mean, she's been a committed activist. Um, it, it's a good pick. And the idea that Deb Holland is going to be at the head of interior after we've had people like Ryan Zinke, for Christ's sake, you know, riding into Washington on his, on his horse, <laughs> you know, with his cowboy getup. Just that alone makes me feel better. Um, what they're going to be able to accomplish, I don't know. We'll have to push them. We'll have to see what happens. But that's that's a bit of a shot in the arm. That's as much of shot a shot in the arm as uh, the new vaccine will be, right? Uh, really, something to see. Uh, so, anyway, what are we here to talk about today? Well, let's see. What time is it again? I have to look at my uh, my tape transport here. How much time do I have? Oh my goodness. I've just talked away about 15 minutes of your time, people. Very sorry. Uh, this is episode 42. I should say, and I usually say this at the very beginning, uh, the opinions expressed here are mine and mine alone. Uh, they don't represent the opinions of anyone that I'm associated with, not my employer, not my friends or family, not my neighbors. Uh, I'm really just speaking for myself. So I just want to put that out there, as I always do. If you have any questions, if you want to push back at all, um, just uh, visit the site um, at anchor.fm slash strange sound and, uh, and you'll find ways to talk to me. Anyway, more on that later. So, you know, as we're looking at this ongoing COVID crisis that's killing in excess of 3,000 Americans every single day, including uh, plenty of people's relatives, you know, families being torn apart on a daily basis, more people being lost than was were being lost at the height of the Second World War. Um, this is, you know, it's appalling. It's just appalling. And the degree to which the degree to which this administration that we have now um, is signaling that they don't care um, it is just, it, to me, it's just gobsmacking that they're not run out of town on a rail. I mean, honestly, it amazes me that they're not being you know followed by people with torches at this point because of the, the abject failure of their policy. And the fact that, and I think I mentioned this last week, the fact that you know they were actively pursuing a bogus policy of herd immunity based on everybody getting sick and that they want to encourage everyone to get sick so that they would get to this fabled herd immunity faster based on crackpot theories advanced by you know some jackass radiologist named Atlas that Trump saw on Fox News and thought, look tough, oh, he looks great. He's got a name like Atlas. He's good television. So he hired him. And then some jackass lecturer from north of the border 
that they put over at the CDC. Someone who's an expert in exactly nothing, making policy that's resulting in the deaths of thousands of people because of their negligence. Now, I talked a little bit about accountability last week. Um, I'm not going to get into it again. I just, I'm just, it's just gobsmacking to me. And what's the president doing? The president is still trying to litigate this election that we just got through. The president is still focused on some quixotic effort to um, challenge the result in the Senate and the House of Representatives, trying to find some shill in either one of these houses, and he'll find one, that when they present when they present the Electoral College results to the Congress, that there will be an objection raised in both houses. This is like Stephen Miller's grisly little wet dream. Of course, he knows about as much about the uh, Constitution as he knows about speech writing, which is zero worst presidential speech writer in the history of the planet. Stephen Miller. I know one thing, he won't be getting a job as a writer when he leaves. God, he sucks. And yeah, I'm talking to you, Stephen Miller. Want to give me a call? Anchor.fm slash strange sound. Be glad to hear from you. Little snipe. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Um, personal grudge. Personal grudge. Can't stand that guy. Anyway. So president is going around still saying I won by a lot I won by a lot we won Michigan by a lot I won uh, I don't know Pennsylvania by a lot we won Georgia by a lot they cheated this is autocratic behavior but you know it occurred to me about midweek I think I understand what he's talking about I don't think it's very obscure. I'm sure you've all figured this out by now. But it just occurred to me that, you know, I was thinking about Trump and it's like, he's he's talking about fraudulent votes overturning what he considers to be the, the legitimate result of this election, which is that he won, a, he won by a landslide. He thinks fraud overturned the results of the election that he won by a landslide so that Joe Biden won, not by a landslide, but by a, by a respectable margin on the basis of fraudulent votes, according to what he says. Trump. Okay, so what's he talking about? Right? He doesn't have any evidence. They haven't even, like, <laughs> his legal team hasn't even argued that there's evidence of fraud. When they come before a court, they say explicitly, no, we don't have any evidence of that. We're just saying that there's opportunity for fraud. But they can't demonstrate that there was any fraud. They have zero evidence. And they can't demonstrate that they were harmed in any way. You know, they they've occasionally come before um, a judge and complained about a, an electoral rule implemented by, say, Pennsylvania or one of the swing states um, after the election's been run, when they could have raised those objections months before the election was run, which is what basically what the, the courts will tell them. Basically, the courts have told them, you should have raised this question before. 
Instead of waiting until after the election and then raising it, first you wait until you lose, and then you raise the question as to whether this rule is 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 legitimate or not. It's ridiculous. On its face. That's why they keep getting kicked out of court. And of course, the Texas case was ridiculous, right? It was ridiculous. Even the Supreme Court, packed by Trump with hyper-conservatives, even they had to say, nah, no, we're not going to even listen to this. There's just nothing there. But again, he, Trump, is acting like a dictator. He is behaving in an autocratic manner. And the reason why he can do this, he's making this claim based on race. Let's face it. He considers the majority of the votes that Biden received for president as illegitimate. Why is that? I think I have an idea why. I think I know why he feels so strongly about this, right? And I think the reason why he feels so strongly about this is because if we lived in a country that was all white people, he would have won in a landslide. He would have won the popular vote by a margin like what uh, Reagan won by in 1984. If you look at the exit polling data, and you know, admittedly, exit polling data is, is, is not entirely reliable, but it gives you kind of a general snapshot of what the demographics of the electorate was on that particular day and in this particular election, let's say. When you look at the exit polling data, what is your racial or ethnic heritage? Among white voters who were 67% of the electorate this time around, 58% of them voted for Trump. 41% voted for Biden. He won 58 to 41. How that plays out in the individual states, I would have to dig into the numbers a bit. But my guess is that that would represent an electoral landslide as well. It was a 17-point gap. That's if only white people voted. When you get down to black people, black voters, which is 13% of the population, the voting population, I should say, it's 87 to 12, Biden. Latinx, 65 to 32. Again, they were 13% of the electorate. 65 to 32, Biden. Closer, but not close enough. Asians, 61 to 34. And they get a little bit uh, fuzzier with uh, non-Asian, non-black, non-white, non-Latinx uh, uh, voters are, are just kind of lumped into other. <laughs> That's fifty-five forty-one, Biden. So Biden wins all, you know, majorities, particularly lopsided majority amongst black voters. Um, and a pretty respectable two-to-one margin um, amongst Hispanic Latinx voters, um, generally speaking, and similar uh, amongst Asian voters. Biden wins a substantial majority amongst non-white voters. Trump wins a substantial majority amongst white voters, but it just isn't enough. White voters are not enough of the electorate now for that to make a difference. I believe he increased his, uh, he increased his numbers amongst white, white voters. Biden's advantage in female voters, um, as opposed to male voters, uh, Trump won male voters by about eight points. 
was 53 to 45 Trump. These are males of all races. He lost female voters 57 to 42. So it's almost a mirror image. It's a little little heavier um, on the Biden side for females. But if you dig into the numbers a little bit more, and I'm going to sort of scroll down, I'm looking at this. I'll, I'll put this link up. It's it's kind of a top-line reading of demographics reflected in the exit polls um, that has been compiled here by the uh, New York Times. And I will uh, I will include this link in the show notes. Um, I'm going to... And here, let's see. White, non-white. So, again, to sort of look at this in the aggregate. Again, white voters, 58 to 41, Trump. Non-white voters, 71 to 26, Biden. They represent about a third of the electorate in this election. 33%, almost exactly a third. But it was enough of an advantage to put him over the top, to put Biden over the top. Biden lost white men 61 to 38. 61% voted for Trump. That was 35% of the voters. Interestingly enough, he also lost white women. White women voted for Trump 55 to 44. That's 32% of the electorate. 55 to 44, he had an 11-point margin amongst white women. It was Juan Gonzalez right after the election that was complaining about this because a lot of the talking heads were looking at this data and saying, my God, what happened to Latinx voters? Why did they vote more heavily for Trump than they did in in, uh, 2016? What's the matter with Latinx voters? He had a little uptick amongst them. Yes, it's true. But what they didn't mention is what happened, and this is what Juan Gonzalez was talking about. White women swung more towards Trump this time. White women swung towards Trump 11 points, 55 to 44. So why weren't they sitting at their, you know, on their panels uh, on Morning Joe saying, what's the matter with white women? Mika, you want to talk to that? What's the matter with white men? 61 to 38 guys? Seriously. After all we've been through in the Trump administration, 61 to 38 for Trump? Are you kidding me? Who the fuck rescued us here? Well, I'll tell you who. I mean, more than anyone else in the gender race sort of crosstabs here, Biden's biggest margin came with black women who were 8% of the electorate. He got 90% of those voters to nine. Black men came in second, 79 to 19. Almost 80%, almost 80-20 black men. They were 4% of the electorate. Latinx men... 59 to 36. A little closer, right? Um, Latinx women, 69 to 30. So that that's what makes up the difference. Women tended to be more progressive. Across the board. But it was women of color, particularly, who voted in large numbers for Joe Biden. And if it wasn't for them, he wouldn't be president. I guess my point here is with respect to Trump and what Trump is saying, 
is that, you know, he's mad. He feels cheated. He feels like the election was stolen from him because people of color voted against him and he doesn't see them as legitimate voters. He's not saying that. But in essence, that's what he's saying. Make America great again. He's hearkening back to a previous period in American life when pretty much just white voters voted. Those were the good old days, right? Lunch Bucket Joe. That was the working class. That's what people still see in their mind's eye when they think about working class. They see Lunch Bucket Joe. Yeah, Lunch Bucket Joe is still there, but you know who else is there? Black women, Latinx women, black and Latinx men, people of color, a lot of them make up the working class. A lot of them. Our concept of what's normative is way out of date. And and Trump just... Um, Trump just embraces that normative framework regarding who is legitimate and who is not legitimate to toss him out of office or to, you know, vote his administration another four years to extend his writ on the presidency another four years. That's what I think. He's always hearkening back to the good old days, right? The good old days are when black people couldn't vote and Latinx people couldn't vote. We were being kept from, from the polls in large numbers. But they were very marginal to the outcome of any election, if at all, if they were a, a feature of it at all. And if that were the case, if that were still the case, if America were still the country that he's talking about all the time, he would be president. He would win by a landslide. Because white voters are still voting for him like crazy. I mean, it's much more... <laughs> I mean, looking at the race and gender of, of the voters is much more indicative of who voted for whom than even looking at their class. Right? White college graduates, 48%. 48% voted for Trump. 51% voted for Biden. White non-college graduates, 67%. Lunch Bucket Joe, 67% of them voted for Trump. 32% voted for Biden. This is the party of working people, right? This used to be the party of, well, Lunch Bucket Joe. It used to be the party of working class white people. Not anymore. There were 35%. They were single largest um, group in this question, what is your race and education level? White non-college graduate, 35% of the electorate, 67% of them voted for Trump, 32% for Biden. And when you get down to non-white college graduates, it's 70 to 27 Biden, 70% non-white college graduates, 70% of them voted for, voted for Biden. Among non-white non-college graduates, non-white people without a college degree, 72% voted for Biden, 26% voted for Trump. So, and that's a quarter of the electorate. So 72% of that quarter of the electorate voted for Joe Biden. 
that's the working class. To the extent that to the extent that the Democrats are a party of the working class right now, that's what we're talking about. It's people of color who don't have college degrees. And some of the ones who do, frankly, because some a lot of those people are, are in the working class now. Because they can't find jobs that are that were typically reserved for college educated people. I mean you can't there's a lot of like sociology majors working as baristas out there. And personally, I, you know, there's nothing, to my mind, there's nothing intrinsically privileged about, you know, working as a guidance counselor. It's a crappy way to make a living. In terms of what you earn, it's not very remunerative. You have to do it because you love it, right? That's what I mean. I'm not saying it's a crappy thing to do for a living. Far from it. It's a very important thing to do. What I'm saying is it's hard to make a living that way. So, I mean, those I consider those people working class. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sort of blurring the lines here, but that's that's what I consider. But if you just look at this chart, non-white, non-college graduates, 72% of them voted for Biden, and that was 24% of the electorate. That was a quarter of the electorate. Lopsided, right? And this is, you know, this is the source of Trump's disappointment, Trump's autocratic disappointment, honestly. Hang with me here. I'm just looking at some more of this data. I don't do my research before the show. I'm doing my research during the show, which is pretty pathetic, people. Sorry about that. I just didn't do my homework today. Oh, my God. Um, It goes through, I mean, this data goes through a lot of questions, your opinion of, your opinion of, your opinion of Joe Biden, you know, approval, um, approval, disapproval, uh, favorable, unfavorable. Um, this was a very polarized electorate, very polarized, very polarized. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, I, I, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll stop there because I'm just, right now I'm just reading, which is crazy. You don't want to listen to me read. It doesn't sound like anything. (laughs) It doesn't sound like anything. I'm starting to sound like my, uh, imitation of, uh, Mitt Romney in our Ned Trek episode, our Ned Trek podcast. (laughs) Uh, I won't get into that, but uh, hey, give Ned Trek a listen sometime. It's at nedtrek.com, N-E-D-T-R-E-K.com. That's occasionally funny and occasionally not. Anyway, that's all I've got to say this week. Um, Bottom line, Trump's complaining because non-white people voted him out. That's basically what he's complaining about. And he doesn't consider that illegitimate. That's my guess. Sounds. That's what it smells like to me. That's what he's signaling to people, which is an extension of what the Republican Party has often done. Just make it sound like, you know, the, you know, create the impression that somehow the votes of non-white people are less than fully legitimate, somehow questionable. Um, this is what they do in, in, in practically every state of the union, save the ones that are really um, strongly have a strong either minority or close to a majority of non-white citizens. This is what we got, my friends. (sighs) Poor little Donnie. He got kicked out by people of color. What a shame. Anyway, suck on it, Donnie. That's all I got. I'd like to hear what you have to say. 
you can leave a one-minute voicemail at anchor.fm slash strange sound. Just go there and you'll find a link for the uh, voicemail uh, tool. Um, you can leave a one-minute voicemail right through the website if you like. Or if you have the Anchor app, there's means to do that. I don't have the Anchor app. I just go on the, the interwebs to do this. Um, you can also uh, tweet at me at Strange Sound Pod. Um, you can send me an IM. You can uh, tweet at me. You can excoriate me online. You can do whatever you like. If you go to big-screen.net, uh, that's my sort of uh, home base on the web. You can find other ways to get in contact with me. Um, I'd be glad to hear from you. I'd be glad to turn this into a conversation. We've had a few more listeners lately, but it's still pretty pretty middling. So uh, please share the show. Tell people about it. You know, If you want to be part of the show, contact me. Be glad to talk to you. We can have a conversation on air if you want. Even do a Zoom session if you want. I'd be happy to do it. This isn't a live show. I pre-record it, but, you know, I'm happy to include any kind of conversation within this show as long as it doesn't make me look too much like a chimp. So uh, go easy on me. Anyway, thanks for listening. I hope you have as good a holiday season as you can manage to have. Please stay safe. Try not to uh, gather in numbers. Uh, Please wear your masks. Practice social distancing, wash your hands, all that stuff. Stay safe. Better days are coming. Be there for them. Good luck out there. Be safe. I'll see you next time.